Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sheila Shoiga and this is Ready to be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort or simply entertain you. I'm delighted to say that psychotherapist Richard Hogan is back in the pod. I hear so many parents into me, you know, should we check her phone, the child's phone? Is that like an invasion of their privacy? Are we overly, you know, invested in the child's life? I'd say, no, that's parenting. That is mm. absolutely parenting because these things are so powerful and you don't know what's going on in your child's life. It's like when I was young, did my mom go into my bedroom and check it to see what was going on? Probably, right? And, and I probably gave her some good data of what I was up to, right? Yeah, and yeah. so that's just been a parent. Would you let your child into a house party where there's loads of drunk middle-aged men up in a bedroom? No, you wouldn't. And so it's, and I would say... It's better if you don't do it covertly and tell them we're going to check your phone. If you want this phone, you have to agree to us checking it and you won't be going to bed with it and you won't be waking up with it. You'll have the phone, but there are rules around it. Originally from Douglas and Cork, he lives in Dublin with his wife and their three daughters. He writes a weekly column with the Irish Examiner and often appears on TV and radio and he specialises in working with families. He's also written two books, Parenting the Screenager and Home is Where the Start Is. And during this conversation, he talks about anxiety in kids and teenagers, the importance of building resilience in our kids, the impact of mobile phones and the prevalence of porn use and how that is affecting the lives of young people. He covered so much during this chat. And as always, I learned so much by listening to him. There was a brilliant reaction to the conversation we had last summer. Uh, I got so many messages about it. So many. I think you really resonated with a lot of people who listened. You were talking about family dynamics and boundaries yeah. and breaking negative cycles in families. Um, and of course, we were talking about your book, Home is mm. Where the Start Is. Um, so I was, I knew from that conversation that I wanted to have you back 
Um, and here we are. So anxiety is mm. something that a lot of people are very much aware of, whether they live with it, whether they know somebody who um, is, is struggling to manage their own levels of anxiety. But globally, there there feels like there is a rise in anxiety. Oh, yeah. Hugely so, Sheila. Absolutely. I think anxiety is the real epidemic here. And the thing, I suppose, from, from my point of view and why I wanted to speak about anxiety is because we've never had much more promotion about mental health, right? And we've never had more talk about mental health, which is a fantastic thing. And we've never had more, let's say, teachers aware of it in schools. And so as I was analysing this, working in my clinic and working in schools and writing about it all the time, I write every Thursday for the examiner. So I'm, I'm writing and I'm thinking about these things all the time. I was thinking, well, why? Because I could see it in my, cl- my own clinic, you know. Why is anxiety the big problem amongst our young adults, but also for adults as well? Why are we so anxious? And there's so many. I think it's a, such a it's such a complicated thing. But some of the way I was looking at it was the first thing I'd say to you, if, if you think about this, our past, right, is not simply recalled. Our past helps us to make sense of who we are now, but here's the most important part. It allows us to accurately predict who we will be in the future, right? Mm, And so that's what I say to parents a lot when I'm talking to them about anxiety and an anxious child. So think about that for a moment because I'll explain what I mean by that. The past isn't simply recalled. It helps us to make sense of who we are right now, but it also allows us to accurately predict who we will become in the future or how we will face things in the future or how we will deal with things in the future. And I could see it in my clinic, Sheila, young young men and girls coming into my clinic in college, university, and dealing with the normal ups and downs of life that I would have dealt with, girlfriend breaking up with you, stress of exams, you know, all those kind of things, money and trying to pay for things and holidays and all the usual ups and downs, but they were really struggling with, the, with, with it and, and kind of... Uh, ultimately crumbling under it right mm. and so I said like, well what's that about and then I went around and I, in- I interviewed I went to about 25 schools and I interviewed about 500 students and I was looking at anxiety resilience and technology because I was writing my first book called Parenting the Screenager I was trying to get some data around that to kind of you know help people with it and what I noticed is that what came out of those interviews is that kids who were like lacking in resilience let's say talked about things as absolute so they'd say like you know they miss a penalty I'm crap at football. I have a fight with my mom. Mom hates me. No, no one likes me. They selectively abstract out one small thing and it becomes what we call the gestalt, the whole, right? And so mm. kids who were resilient in my study found that they spoke about, um, they spoke about adversity as like being transient. You know, I, I'm, I'm feeling crap today, but I was grand yesterday. I'd be better tomorrow. Yeah. In that way of thinking. So it's like being resilient isn't that you're immune to stress. It's we all feel stress. Right. But it's how you speak to yourself about it now. And, and here's the thing again about, you know, the past, rec- recording the past, defining who you are in the present and allowing you to accurately predict who you will be in the, in the future. If we don't allow our children to experience adversity, this is what I would see with the college students when I was talking to them. I could see that a lot of the adversity in their lives was removed from them. You know, and so yeah. if you don't ha- if you don't have the experience of dealing with adversity as a child, your reservoir of skills, your reservoir of resilience is massively depleted. And so when you think about the future, nothing's going to, no, this is really key. Nothing is going to fire your amygdala. Nothing's going to get your system going about an unknown future threat that you believe you don't have the skills to meet. Nothing is going to fire, you know, your system. When you think about the amygdala, it's all about threat and unknown threats, right? So the unknown future, which is always unknowable, if you believe you don't have the skills to meet it, you will, mm. you will constantly be in this state of flux and you will constantly kind of 
be fired up and you're breathing. It can come out of nowhere. You can be sitting down watching TV and all of a sudden you get whacked with this kind of like, you know, body. The body keeps the scores, as the book says, you know, the body yeah. responds to what's going on, you know, mentally. And that's what can happen to you. You can feel, where the hell did that come from? It's because of these beliefs that you're running with. And it's really important for all of us to, to understand we can meet adversity, we can meet challenges, we can overcome those challenges. And when we, when we know that about ourselves, when we believe that about ourselves, we're powerful. And when we think about yeah. the future, we're less anxious. Yeah, it, 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 I there think now, it's, I yeah, there is, there is. And I'm thinking of a lot as you're speaking. Um, and I don't mean to be flippant, but I'm also thinking of maybe like the likes of our generation, our upbringing, mm. those who maybe grew up in the 70s and 80s, where, you know, we're, not that we were left to our own devices. You kind of were. Well, you, Let's be we honest. Were, we kinda, but we were uh, a lot of the I'm time. I'm speaking from my childhood. And our parents did a great old job with the skills and the information that they had that at that had, time. Exactly. And we have so much information now, those of us who are parents, and I suppose we're trying to do the best that we can do with the information we have. But is there a concern that we're just doing too much? See, that's exactly what I mean. That That is such a good point. This is why I love talking to you, Sheila, because you're so insightful, right? And you think about this stuff so much. It's so true. That's, I, I think it's a colliery. It's kind of like an overcorrection from our childhood. So, you know, we weren't particularly, let's say, advised and we weren't particularly, you know, I used to go off there when I was a kid and I'd head up, bye, and I'd be gone at eight o'clock in the morning yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And I'd come back when I got hungry at six o'clock and it was like, how did that go? Yeah, grand. And yeah, off you go yeah. for your dinner. And I know from talking to my friends, that was their experience too. And I think what we felt, I think, uh, for my generation, 70s and 80s parents, that there was an overcorrection to that, that maybe we didn't receive enough love, all right? And maybe we didn't receive enough validation. Maybe we didn't receive enough advice. Maybe we didn't get what we needed. And what I would see is a paradox of parenting. I've seen this so much, Sheila, and I write about it so much, and I, and I call it the paradox of parenting, the very thing that we're trying to ameliorate, the very thing that we're trying to fix. And it's come, it comes out of such good intentions. And I feel for parents today because I think, Jesus, they, we're giving them the message they must be perfect. We're giving them the message they must be like clinical psychologists and doctors of like psychotherapists. Like, it's ridiculous. You know, we're good and we're bad. And I'm a good parent at times and I get it wrong at times. And, you know, and I can be okay with being, you know, not my best self. I'm tired and hungry and shout at the kids up the stairs and all the rest of it. That's okay, right? There's no perfect here. But I think under that, under that desire to kind of ameliorate and fix what we saw maybe as things that were wrong in our childhood, the overcorrection brings the same thing back into life again. It's a strange phenomenon. Wow, yeah. I see it, you know. It's, so mm. how I give an example, I'd see a parent who's saying to me in the clinic, I'd see the, the child, first of all, I'd meet the child and the child would tell me, let's just say I can't stand my mom. She's overbearing. She's ridiculous. She's this, she's that. And I just don't like her. I can't wait to get out of the house, right? This is the conversation. This would go on my clinic, you know, most days, right? And then yeah. I'd bring the parents in and I'd have the conversation. And out of the genogram that I do with the family, you know, and the parents, and I can mm. see them kind of going, why are we going into our lives? This is about my child, you know. And what would often come out, and I'd say very rare, very often come out, is the mother's story of feeling abandoned by her parent and deciding before she had children, my child will never feel that. And so they overly parent, as I would say, you're overparenting, you know, you're overly involved here. Mm. And your child is having the same experience that you had in a different way, but the same feelings of wanting to get away, not liking you. And that kind of stuff is, is, is manifesting through your desire to not give your child that experience. It's a profound kind of a paradox, but I see it so much in my clinic. I know that if it's happening to me, it's definitely happening to people listening that I'm just yeah. thinking of my own situation. I'm thinking of my own kids now. I'm thinking of my own um, parenting style, my own responses to them. And the fact that my son at six already 
can jump to catastrophizing if yeah. if he's doing a picture and he's colored in the wrong bit or he's writing something down and he wants he wants to write a word but the, he's ran out of space on that mm. it's it's over it's done you know he's just hardened himself i i noticed mm. he's hardened on on, on himself uh, at 6 years of age so that's that's that surely is a bit of a, a warning sign yeah and you know a, a perfectionism right uh, is a thing mm. i think kids are st- struggling with children are struggling with more than ever i think perfectionism i think a lot of that is all the information that's out there and I, and I think you know, as you talk about your son there I, I meet that so often right and a child who jumps quickly to like a reaction of it not being perfect and mm. a, a really important conversation is you know sitting down with your child I think it's such an important thing to talk I talk about my kids all the time we don't we don't do everything as we want to do it. We start out with an idea, especially painting. If you ever listen to Woody Allen, you know, he's often interested in talking about, he'd say, I had this great idea for a movie and then I ruined it. <laughs> and that's kind of the artistic, ex- the, the endeavor of it all. And so a part of what you've got to teach your child is that part of it is the enjoyment of it and the, the kind of like, mm. you know, the, the trying it. It's not the finished product and try not to see it as the finished product. I do this with my own kids as well. And I have this with my own children before that idea where they think this has to be perfect. And we're like, for who? And that's the question I'd say to them for who, who does that have to be perfect for, you know? And so that you get, you get a, you get, you get an insight when you ask that kind of a question, who, who are they trying to please? Okay. Very often good. Trying to please someone like, you know, who, who does it have to be perfect for? Yeah, um, and sometimes drawing. Yeah. Most of drawing is about or writing or anything, making anything is about the kind of adventure of it. It's a big a blank page. It's so exciting. I'd have this conversation with kids. It's so exciting. It can go anywhere, and so don't mm. get tied down with what you hope it's going to turn out to be. Because the best thing is like the the, the adventure of it all of the experience of it. Yeah. yeah. So I'm he's a, young. I'm I mean, a, a bit yeah. of that would be also you know not processing your emotions at six. You're so young. Parts sure. of the brain aren't developed yet. You know, and all that kind of stuff. I suppose I'm just aware of it, just kind of going, mm. is that a little, you know, something to for us to, to, to look at? Perfectionism, I'd look at that, like, yeah, and yeah. I'd, I'd have those conversations with him. Because I'm a big believer in, you know, the the old Irish saying, you know, I suppose I'm the type of person that if somebody criticizes me, it doesn't make me want to work harder. But if they if they're seeing something, recognizing something in me that is good, I like to to try and do better you'll you know? res- but not yeah, everybody is the same no no like I know that my partner operates on a different kind of a, a thing and you know he jokes because he's like your good self he's from Cork and he said maybe it's a Cork <laughs> thing that actually sometimes if somebody says you can't do it he'll, he'll want to prove them wrong it's funny that you say that because so much is coming up for me as you're speaking there because I'm thinking and I've said right. this to myself so much recently and I hadn't I don't think I said it too much in my 30s but in my 40s I've been saying you know I'm I'm striving, I think, to prove those people wrong in some ways. And yeah. there's loads of research around that, you know. Like, you know, there's loads of research around the idea of, you know, someone limiting you in their perception of you and then you going to prove them wrong and that being the motivator through life. That's interesting, know, that, isn't it? That it drives you, yeah. And I definitely think I have that in my head sometimes when I'm writing and trying to write this or write that. I'm thinking, I'll show you about, like, you know, what you, yeah. what, you, know, what you thought yeah. about me my my ability. So everybody's different. I suppose figuring mm. out what what a person is, what a kid is, how they respond best to. And I did read something really interesting about praising your child mm. or telling them they're very clever. Things like that, actually, while you might think you're doing a good thing and you're helping them, what you're actually doing is putting pressure on them uh, sometimes I, I, yeah, to I, I, live up to expectation. That can be a real problem for teenagers. Okay. I meet that massively for teenagers where they, they've been told they're really smart 
Everybody mm. tells them they're really smart. And actually what they do is they, it's all, it's, it's almost like a power system, that idea that you're really smart, you've got so much power. And Foucault, this French philosopher, would say that when there's power at like that, you resist it. And what I'd often see is the resistance, the child would actually start to underperform to show mm. people I'm not feeling good in myself with all this pressure. And here's the result of all this pressure in my exam. See, I'm not as good as you think I am. So th- there is, there is a, what I would say, positive reinforcement is such an important part of our development and our maturation. But overly, yeah. here's the thing, overly praising your children becomes meaningless. Hmm. You know what I mean? When you're telling your child that the best of this and that and the best and that, it becomes kind of meaningless. So I remember my daughter saying this to me. She was trying out for some singing competition, whatever, in the school there a, couple, a year ago. And um, she said to me, uh, one of her friends tried out and didn't get the didn't get it and she tried out and she didn't didn't i don't think she got it too much didn't do too go too far in it whatever but she, i remember what she said to me is that she said she observed this in her friend that her friend collapsed under being told that she wasn't able to sing mm. in, in the choir she said because her parents had told her that she was this incredible singer right and she said and i remember my daughter said to me what i like about you dad is that when we're singing together you always tell me if I'm off key or <laughs> if I'm doing, you know, if it's not right or whatever else. Point out, and yeah, say, yeah, yeah. You missed it there a little bit. Simon Cowell. Yeah, well, not that heavy, but I would say, you know, you're a little bit off the key there. What's, you know, how you, what are you thinking about there as you're trying to sing that note? I'd be honest with her. Not yeah. brutal. Not brutal. I wouldn't sure. say you're a trap. I'd be trying to be positive, be a positive thing there. What are you thinking about? How could you think about that better to get towards the note or whatever? And so she'd say, I believe what you say to me. You see, that, that was kind of her point. Yeah. I kind of trust what you're saying That's to me. trust. That's yeah. huge, yeah. Because I suppose it, we do see it. I mean, I mentioned kind of Simon Cowell playfully there, but X Factor is an example of that where you've people, you know, when it when it used to be on TV and they'd yeah. rock up on stage and full the of the visions. joys thinking, yeah, yeah. and the next thing they're crushed by the commentary because perhaps they were told as well by a well-intentioned parent or someone in their life they were great and maybe, mm. the, maybe the reality was they weren't. So exactly. yeah, honesty delivered in the a- right way. It delivered in the right way, but also trying to find out what I'd often say, you know, Jesus, I'm terrible at technology, right? Trying to get onto this thing. It was pushing my competencies massively. So that's not my area. So, you know, mm. I'm never going to be Bill Gates and I'm never going to run as fast as Usain Bolt and I'm never going to paint like Michelangelo. And, I'm, you know, these are things that you have to understand about yourself. But I do have other skills and I do have yes. other aspects of my personality that I think are quite interesting. And I, I like them and I go and develop them and I, you know, and I kind of like mine into them. I think that's what we need to do with our children. We can't tell them you're going to be the you're going to be this and this and this. It's about trying to figure out what do you, what are you really interested in, what how, what do you think you'd like to develop. That's kind of a better way without putting huge pressure on them and giving them like false information about themselves. So when they go out there, they're destroyed by the feedback that they receive. Mm. Yeah, because we even have those chats because he asks us questions about things that we do and, mm. you know, and I'm very open about, you know, I can do such a thing, but I'm mm. not great at this. Exactly. It's not a strong point because we can't be great at everything. And it's healthy for them to hear that you as an adult can't do it all either. Um, right. So this rise in anxiety, this this lack of resilience now, it, mm. it is more and more an issue because I have friends with kids of lots of different ages from around the age group that I have to a lot older. Um, and I definitely have heard that there's, you know, even from the like eight, nine age group, that there's a oh, sense yeah. of overwhelm that's creeping yeah. in amongst children. Well, I think that's absolutely true, Sheila. And I write about this and I talk about this a lot. And I get sometimes I get criticism from the people that I might be speaking about, if I'm being honest, right? And that's okay. I, you know, that's that's fine. I, I get that. But um, I think we have to be very careful about who we invite into our schools to talk to our kids. 
Okay. Right. That's that's a really important thing. I, and I, I, I write about this and talk about this. I think we have to be very careful who stand in front of our kids and the messages that they give our children. We have to be very careful with that because kids are so suggestible. And so if you put someone in front of the school and they talk in front of a class and they talk about self-harm or they talk about their own anxiety and that kind of stuff, and they don't have... Um, you know, positive ways to deal with the anxiety. They're just telling their story of anxiety and they're not telling how you manage anxiety and what's a good way of, of dealing with anxiety. And I had a student come up to me today, actually, and she said, thank you so much. I slept last night, right? It was, it was just so interesting because they had been given a self-help talk and she said she didn't find it that helpful. And she said to me, uh, and I could see her eyes were all kind of swollen from like tiredness. Cause, and I said to her, did you sleep last night? And she said, no. And I said, okay. And I went through this little tiny little trick with her. Right, and just a tiny little trick. I said, "This is what I do." I said, "I'm not a great sleeper myself. My mind is working all the time, and I've got big things to do in the day, and I'm doing something." And I, and I, what I said to her, "What I know is, I can function highly without sleep." So I said to her, "I can function without sleep highly, and so I know I don't need it. When I think I need it, I know my mind's going to act against me and say, well, you need eight hours tonight,' and then I'll be going, I need four hours tonight. Oh my God, if I go to sleep now, it'll be three hours, two hours, one hour, no sleep. That's the way you, your mind gets kind of mm. like you know gets into a really." churn of rumination and I said to her is it a little trick I said and I gave her this little story about Usain Bolt I said when Usain Bolt first ran he put the shoes on the wrong feet because he was so anxious and he still run the he still won the race and I said Usain Bolt was never anxious after that moment because he realized even in his worst day when he wore the shoes the wrong fit he could still win a race and I was like now you know on your worst day you can still perform I said, I know I can go into an exam and still perform on my worst day. I said, you need evidence of that. She goes, I have plenty of evidence of that. I said, she said, I did loads of my exams without sleep. I said, well, now you know. And the next day I saw her, she came up, she said, thanks so much. She had had a massive sleep last night because I said to myself before I'm going to sleep, I don't actually need to sleep. And she shut down. Like wow. There's a little trick. Brilliant. It's a little yeah. trick, right? And so when people come in front of your student, your child, and they talk about mental health, they have to have a little bit of, well, I think they, need, they should have a lot of evidence behind them what they're saying, you know, because I've worked so much, Sheila, and, I, and I'd had a teenage girl there before the summer who was self-harming. And I asked her, where did she get this idea from? And she said, from someone who came into the school to talk about it, right? Hmm. And so we have to be very careful that we're not suggesting. And then the literature around schools has to be a little bit more positive Right. I think there's a lot to talk about anxiety and eating and self-harm and all this stuff around the school. So if you think about that, we're so suggestible as a species and there's all this negative literature around us. I, I honestly, I, I just think it just drenches into the into the soul there. And so we have to be very careful with the messaging we're giving our children. And this is yeah. what I say, because, because of social media is so powerful now. Right. And there's a lot of fools on social media. And I don't like to use that term right but there is an awful lot of like really unprofessional like not trained unskilled at the mm. best you know they're just trying to make money and it reminds me of the diet ad the diet fad of the 90s you know six minute abs five minute abs four minute abs whatever and it's all cut out carbs it's all about deficits cut out carbs from the 90s cut out this cut out that live a paleo life and all this stuff so it's like you know you can be 24 7 happy i see this stuff on instagram all the time i'm like what in the name of God, are we telling people? And yes. so when kids come to me and I'd say to them, between one and 10 on that scale, where are you? And they'd say four. And I'd say, that's good enough. That's pretty good. And I can see them going, what the hell? What? Yeah. Because right? they're, they're expecting yeah. me to go, wow, there's six missing. My God, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. right? And so what I'd say to them is, that's pretty good. I mean, you're okay. And I'd say, it's okay to be okay. You know, being okay is okay. Most of us, and this is what I'd say to them, are only okay most of the time. We have moments of, you know, nice times and we have moments of where things aren't going so well and we've had a bad day. I said, mostly we're in the four, five, six kind of zone. That's where we're kind of at, right? We're not really up in the seven, eight, nines all the time. 
the human brain isn't designed for like constant elation and happiness we're more down kind of like you know feeling okay and just working ahead and kind of thinking about the next step the next step that's that's most of us and it's Mm. okay just to be okay and i can see the pressure yeah of course like you tapped into so much between you know now social media and the way it is and how we yeah. use it and how how much it's it's part of a lot of people's lives um and particularly young people uh i suppose the labeling as well that is around that maybe wasn't there the language the wording no. that was that wasn't there in when we were kids um Not and while all. it's a positive in the sense of discovering and learning and helping is there the other side of it is as you said is when it's kind of in the wrong hands or wrong person delivering the information, then it actually can be negative. I think it's massively negative. And I think, you know, if you look, I've written about it coming out tomorrow in the Examiner about, you know, Meta and all the rest of it and what what they've been caught doing is, you know, making their product much more addictive and they're pushing information to children that's harmful. And, you know, there's, I think, like 43 attorney generals taking cases against Meta now. So this is Mm -hmm. a huge thing in America. I I know it. I mean, Sheila, we all know that they're up to no good. We know there's millions of children under 13 on Instagram. We know the data is there like and they're mining all their detail and they're trying to you know this, this, that's just the next generation of revenue so they're unscrupulous and they're sending people like andrew tate to teenage boys mm. right because they know teenage boys want to consume andrew tate is andrew tate saying anything positive for teenage boys to consume absolutely not right is it no. is it kind of a is it a dangerous message it is i've i've read i've looked i've looked at lots of it because i've written about it i've looked at lots of what he's saying it is a dangerous message there's no doubt about it um it's clickbait he's just a, he's just a charlotte and he's just a grifter but he's he's very good at like you know he understands what he's doing he's very good at the clickbait so to get kids in they say they kicked him off instagram and yet he pops up all the time so they there's no doubt about it social media is feeding into this uh, and on top of that then there's this for teenage girls, let's say, which I've found incredibly striking because I'm not a teenage girl. I've got a teenage girl currently living with me in my house, right? Um, she mm. turned a teenager this month and I've got two younger girls there. So I've got three daughters and the teenager is teaching me a lot of what I've written, what I've written about over the years. Yeah, I'm seeing yeah. the theory in front of me now, you know, I've been writing about this for years. Um, but what, I, what I've noticed with teenage girls is that they're consumed, I mean, with just the minutia of their face. They're consumed with like, you know, eyelashes are you know, a girl said to me recently in my clinic she was upset saying one of her friends said that her eyelashes were gappy I never heard that phrase in my life before right and so she was I was like can you explain that a little bit to me and she was telling me about what it, what it meant and she was talking about this and her eyes and her ears and I just see this so much and it's a 100% coming from social media and Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat mm. it's coming from those platforms where there's filters where you, I can get rid of this line here the circle here yeah. I can put a filter on and that's I mean that is disturbing for a young developing mind to kind of view yourself in deficits because neuroscience would say thoughts about self this is a really important thing about from what neuroscience teaches us thoughts about self are statistically indistinguishable from negative thoughts and emotions right so mm-hmm. the more you think about yourself the more negative you're going to be and so social media is showing you filtered fake lives and so when you think about yourself in comparison to that you will always find a deficit and so you'll always feel crap. You'll always be in flux. Yeah. But that's what they're designed for because then you consume it and you traffic it more. I mean, that's, that, that is insidious. It is, yeah. Um, I remember a number of years ago, I made a conscious decision to not use a filter ever again on when I'm coming on stories on Instagram because it was messing with my head. Because every time I'd come yeah, on, I'd, I'd flick across and find something more flattering. I'd 
definitely look better. I'll definitely use that. And then I realized this is really messing with my head. And I am somebody who I have work to do anyway on self-image. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I worry that the childhood is getting, the years of childhood are getting shorter and shorter. Ah, uh, they are. I've, I've seen it so much with my own daughter. Like we held off on the phone because, you know, I was, I was like, no, you're not getting a phone. She's like, in fourth class, can I get a phone? Not, not, she didn't ask seriously, but she did ask. Fifth class, she was asking more seriously. And then in sixth class, she was really asking. I said, you're not getting a phone in sixth class. And it, it was at her confirmation, I gave her the phone. And because I was thinking she'll be able to connect with her friends over the summer and that will get her ready for the leave in going into the secondary school and she'll have a little network of friends. And that was true. Um, but I just seen I've seen such a transformation. Uh, and, you know, yeah, they they just get dug into the phone. And this child that you were with for so many years, 12 years, is now gone to the phone. And there's like eyelashes are the big thing you know and makeup is the big thing and you're kind of you're looking at this and kind of going well that wasn't when I was I was born 75 when Mm -hmm. I was going out with girls in my teenager years that like that baggy jumpers and t-shirts Nirvana written across it or whatever that was the look right you know what I mean yeah and so nobody understood how I certainly never heard about like a six-pack and boy I never heard like macros or micros and 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 what yeah and so we weren't that consumed with body image no, I don't ever think I was really looking at myself at 15 or 16 no. or 17 or 18. No. You know, that kind of came around maybe later on, but I certainly wasn't doing it in my teens thinking, Jesus, yeah, yeah, whatever. That was not part of my uh, existence, but it, it very much a part and pressure on modern teenagers, no doubt about it. And then you're always going to find a deficit. That's the way the brain is designed. You know, you're always going to look at yourself and think, no, don't like this. And I'd sit down with some amazing, like amazing teenage girls and they're, sure. you know, so emotionally, uh, you know, just drained in the clinic, just just collapsed under how they hate, how they look. And it's kind of, it actually makes me emotional because I'm looking at these beautiful kids with this yeah, incredible gift. 
this great this gift of life which is 400 quadrillion to the power of 150,000 i mean it's absolute nearly zero the chances of mm-hmm. us being here sheila it's an absolute yeah. miracle and then we taint it and ruin it with all this comparison you know and all this looking on instagram and looking at perfect images and you're kind of going jesus look at just if you could just see yourself mm-hmm. you know if you could just see how i see you you just you know you'd just be you know so much more joyful in the in your world yeah god when you say it like that I, you know I got goosebumps there because it is it is that thing of we don't realize actually how precious it is just to be no. here. Jesus, be that's the gift. That yeah, is the miracle. That's the gift, that yeah. is absolute miracle, yeah. On the phones, right? Because mm. it is it is something that uh you know, all families probably have that discussion about, you know, when is it when is it going to be and the, the pressure comes on and like Oh I, yeah, I, massive. We we even find it with with our son who might see other kids his age with the parents phone looking at a cartoon and YouTube or something. And I suppose we don't do that. And I'm not saying that in any judgmental way or any preachy way. No, we I just don't. That, yeah. Yeah. But when he sees it, he wonders, well, why don't I get that? So I'm already seeing that at six years of age, there's an element of kind of, wait a second, oh. I want what they have. So yeah, the peer yeah. pressure aspect is massive, isn't it? Oh, it's unbelievable. And I really like it because I've been right, as I said, I've been writing about this. I wrote the book, Penny the Screen- Screenager in 2020. And my daughter turned a teenager this year. And so she's in first year this year. I felt and I've been writing about this. And, you know, I know a lot about this area. And I felt yeah. incredible pressure. I mean, incredible pressure last year. And I remember saying to her, it was kind of funny one day, she said to me, you know, I'm the only one in the school without a smartphone. And she said, and I said, I doubt that's true, to be honest. And then the next couple of days she came up to me, she said, a girl came up to me today and she said, it's your, it's my, it's your dad's fault. I don't have a smartphone, right? And I was like, right. well, at least you're not alone now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, she, yeah, she was yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But the pressure is unbelievable yeah. on people and on parents. And I would say to parents listening to this, hold off as long as you can. Mm. It's a thumb in the dam. That's the reality, because once it comes in, it's over, you know, and when you do bring the phone into your child's life, and I would say 12, 13 is probably the right starting point there. Hopefully 13, first year, my daughter was a bit younger going to first year. She was 12, um, but she had it going into first year. And I'm, I'm honest about it. I don't try to pretend, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, tell, I'm sure. living it myself, you know, and I yeah. get it right and I got it wrong. But she's also, I feel kind of responsible, you know. But w- when I gave her the phone, I said to her, and I, because I know this myself by li- working in my clinic, I said, you, you, we're going to give you the phone now. I said, but you're, we're going to check it from time to time. Because I hear so many parents saying to me, you know, should we check her phone, the child's phone? Is that like an invasion of their privacy? Are we overly, you know, invested in the child's life? I'd say, no, that's parenting. That is mm. absolutely parenting because these things are so powerful and you don't know what's going on in your child's life. It's like when I was young, did my mom go into my bedroom and check it to see what was going on? Probably, right? And, and I probably gave her some good data of what I was up to, right? Yeah, and yeah. so that's just been a parent. Would you let your child into a, a house party where there's loads of drunk middle-aged men up in a bedroom? No, you wouldn't. And so it's, and I would say, it's better if you don't do it covertly and tell them we're going to check your phone. If you want this phone, you have to agree to us checking it and you won't be going to bed with it and you won't be waking up with it. You'll have the phone, but there are rules around it because I see, Sheila, the parents giving the phone to the child kind of willy-nilly without a policy. They fall into it, you know, can I have the phone? They give them the phone Hmm. and it is absolutely chaos by 15, 16. All sorts of terrible things are kind of going on there. And there's an inverted hierarchy where the child is saying, you don't get my fucking phone and you don't ask me for my phone. You set that culture very early. Now, I asked yeah. my daughter for her phone. She's not delighted when I ask her for the phone, right? She was grand last year. When I ask her this year for the phone, she's not delighted. But I okay. can handle her not being happy with me. 
That's the key. Yes. I'm not her. Yes. I'm not her best friend. You know what I mean? I'm not her best yeah, friend. Yeah, yeah. I'm Very the one good. saying, "Give me your phone. Go to bed. Don't eat that. You can do that." So you know, I think kids try to position their parents as best friends, and then there's an inverted mm. hierarchy because you don't tell your best friend to stop eating. You don't tell your best friend to go to bed. You don't tell your best friend to whatever it is. Don't eat chocolate, or and that's mm. kind of like you can't get positioned like that as a parent. Do you have safeguards on the phone? Then I would imagine yeah. you do. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. All the apps cut off at like half seven. Okay, very good. Yeah. So then she can't access her yeah. apps. And that's that's great. That's a great thing with smart with iPhones. You can just have a family thing. My wife is in control of it, cuts it off. Oh, very good. But yeah, and you just cut it off and you can see all her history, what's what's going on there and all that. It's great. It's really important. This, I suppose this is all ahead for me, so I haven't oh, it really is, absolutely, looked into yeah. it. But I, I think, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not the most, you know, you were joking about technology. Oh, I'm, I'm not, not the most tech savvy. No. So it's something I'm, I'm conscious of. I need to get better at this. Yeah. So because yeah, I know yeah. that... Already he's better with the remote control at six than I am. So, you know, I got to get I got to get on board and and, and, yeah. and, and, and educate myself so that I'll be able to, you know, manage this stuff. But I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm terrified if I'm totally honest about the whole thing, about the, you know, um, what we're opening our kids up to. And I remember hearing the summer about Greystones as as a town School. in Ireland and all the yeah. parents associations came together and all of the primary schools and Greystones, as far as I'm aware, all banned phones. So it's not once it's all kind of your classmates on the same page, then you don't have that element of peer pressure. I just thought it was an amazing initiative. And I know there are talks about rolling it out nationwide, which would be fantastic. But it still doesn't take away from the fact that at 13 and 14, usually that's usually the age 12, 13, 14 starting secondary school. That's still a young age to to have a device in your hand that has potential to to access to everything yeah and pornography which i'm always talking about and and writing about and looking for advocacy on it Um, and petitioning for which is fantastic and good on you i am thanks sheila because i've been looking at this for so long and i've worked in schools you know and and i and i and i sit on the board of a national advisory council for parents and schools and so i hear from all schools all over ireland and i hear from all what's happening in different different areas around ireland and pornography is the real serious and then i sit in my clinic and i actually work with adults you know who are stuck in pornography and i work with couples it's, it's you know it, it's it is an addiction and there's mm. no doubt about that and um it's extreme because you know when you when i think of pornography i often think about like friends it's kind of like you know joy and chandra watching like some sort of pornography and someone comes with a pizza it's all normalized it's a bit of fun and it's not like serious that's not what pornography is today no. It's extreme hardcore material. I'm not approved, like you know, what I mean? it's, but it's extreme no, hardcore no. material. Yeah, yeah. And so, if you're exposing a senior infant, which I've worked in a school with, a senior infant had watched that on the iPad, right? And so, I've worked where where children have expo- have found their father's pornography. A that senior infant. Senior infant, yeah. Had oh no, oh that's had se- obviously yeah. had come no, across but, something they shouldn't have. Yeah. Had been oh consuming dear. it, came across it, and then oh started. Oh God. Con- yeah. No, but that no, that's not unusual. What does that no. do to the young brain? Oh, I mean, I mean I- that. Yeah, that is disturbing. I know it is disturbing, disturbing for me to say it was disturbing to to sit in that situation and have that conversation. It, 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 very, but I'm I'm working with like you know, four classers and fifth classers and sixth classers who have consumed really hardcore stuff. And like we've got Anna Kriegel's case where boy A had consumed bestiality yeah. and he consumed um, BDSM images, and so it's like. What I'm saying is like not every boy who consumes you know pornography is going to have pathological desires towards women. That's true. Like not every boy who drinks is going to be an alcoholic, right? But if there's a seed of vulnerability in there, this is stuff mm. is like fuel. 
if you grow up in dysfunction or something's you know negative happening in your life and you start consuming get lost into pornography this stuff is really brutal and i work with so many teenage boys who come into the clinic because they know of my petition and they know of me talking about it and they write about it they come in for help to get off it because they know I'm not going to judge and they know I'm not going to be approved. Yeah. They come in and say, look, I don't want to be consuming this anymore. It's not good for me. I, I'm just not. And I, and I, and I work with couples. Um, Jesus, I actually kind of get emotional because I see it so much. It destroys couples. I think it's the most hidden ill in our society that I don't think many people talk about. And I saw that, that Jeremy Godfrey is the new media regulator and he's saying that they're going to look at this now and they're going to bring in age identification. And I was like, fucking at last, this is what I've been talking about for years. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, have yeah. to make our children so that that would stop a 10 year old putting their ID in. They wouldn't fucking be able to find their ID. Sure. That, that, that would stop a senior infant wouldn't be able to get near it. Right. I mean, 17, 18 year old, whatever. That's that's your own business. Um, but a child wouldn't be able to get at it. And that's 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 a crucial thing. But what I saw at the end of his report, he said, it's not going to be absolutely prescriptive. And I was like, feckin' hell, it has to be absolutely prescriptive to these mm. companies because they'll find a way around it. They want more traffic on their platforms, not less traffic. And so, you know, I mean, they, they want yeah. more eyes. They want more eyes on their website, on their platform so they can sell advertising on it. And so if if it's not prescriptive, I think it's we're just kite flying a little bit or something. I don't know. I don't know yeah, why. Yeah. Yeah. We always stop short of just getting the answer. Yeah. And we need legislation. That's yeah. what your petition is robust, all about. Yeah, robust legislation that finally protects children. Why is it so slow to happen, I wonder? Because, you know, talk around this and about the, you know, um, cyber safety has been happening for years. It's obviously yeah. an increase now because people are aware and they're seeing it. As you, you were saying, you're mm. seeing it every day in your practice. We're seeing it more and more now. But why is it so slow? It's, it, it is Change. tricky. Uh, you know, it is tricky, right? And so a lot, of these fir- a lot of these companies are outside our legal jurisdiction. They set their platforms up in wherever, Romania or where, wherever it is. And so mm. then they just like use the, the internet like pirates. You know, you know what I mean? But I, again, that's still, that's a little bit of a cop-out from the government. There's always a way around this thing. If this was people coming into our banks and stealing money, we would figure out very quickly how to stop them from getting into our bank and stealing money. You know what I mean? And so yeah. there is way, there is a way around it. There's absolutely a way around it and we have to be more robust. And I think a bit of it too, probably, Sheila, if I'm being honest, is money. There's so much money generated from this thing. It's incredible. And, um, you know, and so there's a lack of political will. Maybe I think politicians, because I talk to politicians quite often, they feel that they can solve it. And I talk about Ungarda Shiakana quite often. And they'd say that the legislation thing is a real problem, that they, they're powerless because these guys are outside, the leg- outside their jurisdiction. But we have to kind of like change the laws around that. Yeah, absolutely we do. So you've given your child a phone at whatever yeah. age that you feel <laughs> is appropriate. Yeah. Um, and... If you're somebody listening and you have just found yourself in a similar situation um, and you've done maybe similar to you, when when is it not appropriate to keep looking at the phone? As in you're now in a position where it's yeah, normal, it's she doesn't like it, yeah. but you're still viewing what she is consuming. Very good question. Very good question. And I'd say I, I don't think I want to be looking at my 17-year-old daughter or 18-year-old daughter's life now because, you know, I don't think that would be good for my mental health to see what yeah. my 17 or 18-year-old daughter is up to because she's an adult now. And uh, your 17 or 18-year-old son, maybe it's best, you know, as not to be checking their phone at that. Um, but I, I think while they're ad- while they're adolescents, I know that's teenagers still. But while they're in adolescence and they're children, as the, as by the state of the law, right? Now that 
and also their impulse control is not developed. That part of the brain isn't that well, you know, adverse risk thinking and all that. Not very well developed from 12 to 16. It's not that well. It gets much, it grows much faster after that part. So that's why they're so vulnerable teenagers. And you're trying to give them the right advice. And you're trying to hold them during this adolescence. And I always say adolescence, that, that period of adolescence is about a kind of a held, this is the way I'd always phrase it, a held autonomy where you can't mm. give them full autonomy because that's negligence. They can't manage it. And so you're holding them in a way that's allowing them to make mistakes, allowing them to go off into the world, allowing them to find out who they are. But you're there along the way, supporting them by their side, not on mm. their side. When you're on their side, you're their best friend. You know, you're, you're their best friend and that kind of stuff. That's not helpful. You're by their side. You're listening to them. You're giving them a bit of advice, maybe. But the key thing here that I'd always say for us as parents, what we're trying to do is give them the right advice, the right thinking. That's the key thing. Critically evaluate the world around them, make good decisions. That's why boundaries are so important, because they teach children how to navigate the world. They teach them that there's rules to things and they teach them that there's consequences to things. And so people would often think, well, boundaries are just punitive. And they'd say, absolutely not. Boundaries are what teach your child. I shouldn't go swimming now because I've been drinking. I don't think I should jump across this this you know balcony over there because if I fall, I could paralyze myself. I don't. I've had two pints. I don't think I should drive home now. That's what boundaries teach your children. They teach yeah. them that every every behavior has a consequence, and when you choose that behavior, you bring all those consequences into play. And so when you when you teach them that young, you develop their critical thinking. And so here's the key tip: what you're trying to do is make them, you know make the right decisions. This is what I always say. What what any of us want as parents, because you're not going to be around all the time to make the right decisions when you're not there. Yeah. You know, that's a key thing to develop in your child. But that takes all of that work through adolescence to get there. Yeah. And the whole way through, I suppose, mm. isn't it? Um, like you, and you beyond, spoke- maybe. <laughs> yeah. And beyond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Like you spoke about how, you know, I suppose when kids sit in front of you, they know they're not going to be judged by you. So they yeah. feel comfortable to open up and say, open up about it, yeah. you know, what what is bothering them or what is what is the issue in their lives? And I suppose that is really important for us as parents to yeah. uh, li- open our ears to and absorb, because I suppose what we don't want is our kids to to be in trouble and not feel that we're a safe space oh for them. Such a brilliant point. It is so important, Sheila. And I meet so many teenagers who haven't told their parents about what's going on in their life. And it's such a great point, you know, because and parents often use the phone as a parenting tool. So they'd say, Sheila, because this, give me your phone. And they, they take the phone off the child for like a week. And so what the child learns then is like, you better not get caught doing stuff. So they get better at being deceptive. And then right. also on top of it, if I do tell, they're going to take my phone off me. Now, the phone for a teenager is their lifeline. Without their phone, they're absolutely subjects of derision. They're outside their peer group. That is way too much for a child. So I, this is what I'd always say to my daughter about it. You know, we hope that you'd, you, you'd come to us and talk about anything that's coming, you know, that's happened. This is what I'd always say. We will never judge you. Yeah. We support you, right? And, and I always say this to her, I won't take the phone off you. Right. I won't take the phone off. So she knows that that's not in play as a parental tool. I will not take the phone oh, off. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so if something happens, someone sends her, let's say, you know, a, a rude image, a boy sends her like a dick pic, let's say, whatever, which is happening all the time. Yeah, she, yeah you know, unfortunately. Unfortunately. And then someone asks her to send a picture of her chest or whatever. This is this is the stuff I work with every day now. Right. Right. And um, you, you'd hope. And I'm I'm being honest. I'm not saying I know she would for a fact. I would hope that she'd be able to come down and know know for a fact. And I think she would know. They won't take the phone off me, and they won't yeah. judge me. They won't yeah. judge me around this thing, you know. And that's the key thing. 
I suppose you're so informed because of what you do for a living, yeah, which exactly. is, uh, yeah. I would imagine, a huge benefit um, in yeah, terms of, of navigating, yeah, yeah. you know, this. But I don't get it right all the time. I'm not pretending sure. that this is sure. an absolutely no, adventure for anybody, you know. And it's a huge period, I suppose, for you guys as a family. It's a huge milestone. The fact she's oh, turning a teenager oh, yeah. this month it's and it's exciting, but also I would imagine it comes ah, it's with its own. Oh, as well. yeah. 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 It's exciting. It's terrifying. It's a roller coaster. She went away on holidays with her friend and their parents for four days over Christmas. That was a huge okay. thing. You know, yeah. 12 years she's been with us, 13 yeah. years she's been with us nonstop. And so she You're went sure. out for four days, you know, and that was a huge thing. So we're, I'm living it all. It's funny because I'm watching all the theory that I've been talking about for yeah. so long. Yeah. And I can see myself, something I used to always say. And I think, well, how did I come up with that stuff when I didn't have a teenager? And I'd always say, like, you know, having a teenager, I suppose from working in schools and all that, I'd say, you know, it's not about loss because I could see that. I could always see that my, when I'd have parent-teacher meetings and I'd hear parents saying, you know, my beautiful son is gone or my beautiful daughter. She was so lovely. And now she's gone. She's a mm-hmm. nightmare to live mm-hmm. with. And I could hear the loss in them. But I could also see the loss in the child who once looked at them as colossus, a big pillar in their life you know what I mean yeah and so what I'd say always is it's not about loss it's about being together differently during this period how to be together in a different way through adolescence that's the key thing if you're trying to hold on to them like you know and have them innocent and look up to you and worship you you're going to have incredible conflict you know and so it's about allowing your child to kind of like separate from you a little bit and allow them the space but also being present and being and supporting them and that they'll come back, I suppose, in a they'll different come back. way. That's the key, rapprochement. They come back. Mm. And I would always say it's around 17, 18 where they come back. And that beautiful, yeah. and that's why I always say to parents, that beautiful child that was there is still here. Yeah, sure. But she's in the midst of identity formation. And that's mm. not always a very pleasant thing. It's pretty No, and I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm thinking back in my own teenage years. Oh, they yeah, were not absolutely. particularly pleasant. No. You know, a lot of the time. It was a nightmare to be around, I'd say. Yeah, same. <laughs> Same, same. And, yeah. you know, wanted so to do my I, own I thing, hope, believed I was right all the time. And yeah, all the time. Yeah. And I hope I remember that, actually, when the time comes that I have <laughs> well, a bit we, more compassion, maybe, for what they're going through. I think we lose so quickly contact because we've all been teenagers. Yeah. And all of us are family therapists, but we've all been teenagers. Sure. And so we know what it was like. And we know all of that. I remember reading Catching the Rifle the first time when I was 12. And Colin Caulfield blew my head off because he was so anti the establishment. I was like, that's me right there. I'm Holden yeah. Caulfield. Because I was the same, you know, with all these idealistic kind of, you know, ideas about the world and romantic ideas and all that kind of stuff. And hating the adult world and seeing it as so corrupt and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's adolescence. Like, that's what I love about being around teenagers. I love the fact that they actually think in those kind of terms and they're so, um, you know, excited about the world and they're excited about their lives. I, I love all that stuff. Mm. So there is no right or wrong. I suppose every kid no. is different. Um, but having a good, having good communication with your kid, I suppose, is really, really important, particularly when you approach oh, the years key. when they want the likes of, of a smartphone, because, you know, once they have it, as you said, it's, it's, it's changed forever. And I suppose doing your homework in advance, putting in place those kind of guidelines, which is, look, we're going to check your phone and for them to know that rather than springing it on them. What you're saying is so important there, Sheila. It's so, it's like right on it. And what I'd say, what I'm talking about, what we're talking about early intervention here is much, much better than dealing with a 15 year old who's out of control, right? And so you set the culture. We all accept the reality that we're born into. And something that I would always do with my own daughters, like I never allow them to speak badly to us or rudely to us, you know? And they have Mm. in times, of course, when they're in temper, but I'd always go back and talk to them and say, you know, the way you spoke to myself and mom there, that's not, that isn't on, you know, we don't speak to you like that. Do we speak to you like that? So you don't speak to us like that. And I just get that really early. I cut that out because I see what happens. I see it at my clinic, you know, it starts off with like saying, 
fuck off to your parents and then it's, it moves on to slamming the door and then it moves on to something else and then it moves on to something else and then all of a sudden you've got a really problematic you know interaction with your child and so setting the culture really early is so important because parents we set the culture we set the absolute kind of values and the beliefs that the family operates under and so i would never use an expletive you know to the kids or you know this or put them down in a way that's like you know really derogatory or negative like that i don't speak to them like that i get annoyed with them i get angry with them i you know i give out to them but i don't speak like that to them and so then that takes that out of the system and so they, they don't know that as a, as a way of operating and, and communicating with each other and so you know they fight with each other as, co- as course teenage girls will do but I, I'd pull them up on it and say you know that was been disrespectful to your sister why did you say that to her and so you're just trying to always bring in this culture of like respect and we don't curse at each other and we don't slam doors now I grew up with slamming doors right all the time and so mm. I remember thinking to myself as a, as a young child I'm not having this in my family yeah. You know, I'm not going to have my kids slam the door. I'm not going to slam the door when I become emotionally, let's say, you know, uh, aroused there. I'm not going to slam the door in a temper because I can't express myself. I'm not going to do that. That's not going to be something that my children ever experience. And so it's important that you set that value. You know, as a, as a couple, they're the values that we want to operate by. And then your kids just live those. Yeah. And Richard, like that's huge what you're saying, because, yeah. you know, for a lot of people who do grow up with certain um, you know, whether they had one parent at home or two or whatever their own situation was, it's very easy to repeat what you yourself oh grew God. up with. So the fact that Absolutely. you haven't repeated that is is just wonderful and it shows the amount yeah. of work you've done on it. Not well, to thanks, all, go into that automatic, you know, I will do what I what I learned was my normal growing up. That's no, absolutely. I know. Thank, and I really appreciate you saying that. But that took a that took work. You know, mm. I certainly in my early 20s would have been like that and not able to control my temper and all that kind of stuff and emotional and and all, and, and slamming doors perhaps as well. And But I, I worked it out definitely in all my training, I suppose, in psychotherapy and all that and helped me to understand myself and understand the impulses. And right, even writing the book Home is What the Start is. Again, I was, I was mining back into all of that early experience to show that we all come out and somehow none of us come out of a perfect family. We all come out of some sort of mess in some ways and our parents aren't perfect and let's not try to view them as these perfect people because they weren't they came out of their own mess and they did the best they could as you said so elegantly there they did the best they could with what they knew about parenting and all the rest of it and my father struggled with addiction and had alcoholism present in his life and that was a terrible derailing thing for him and an awful experience for us as a family if I'm being honest but I I was very cognizant that's not going to be my children's experience and I knew that there's a compulsion to repeat latent in all of us, right? If, especially if we experience like dysfunction, we generally go out and look for someone who's dysfunctional so we can live that familiar life. And I was like, well, that's, that's there. I see it. That's not going to be me. And that took massive intentionality. Well, fantastic. Fair play to you. Um, Thanks, Sheila. Before I let you go, maybe if you could leave listeners with some final, you've given us loads of tips the entire way through the conversation. I know you've probably given a lot of nuggets for people to kind of really think about. Certainly I'm thinking about a lot of a lot of situations, but maybe just some final words for listeners on managing children's struggles, you know, whether they are showing signs of anxiety or pressure at school or whatever it might be. What would you say would be the most important thing? The first thing I would say, because I'm, I'm always looking at early intervention, right? And so just go back to that phrase I said that the past isn't simply recalled. It helps us to make sense of the present and accurately predict the future. And so underneath that, I would say, do not rush to solve your child's problems. It's such a, a it's such a, just, a, a, you know, it's such a natural impulse to try to solve your child's problem. 
And I would say, well, when you solve the problem, you're the hero in your child's life a little bit, but you deplete, you deplete that memory of past events that they dealt with. And so when your child comes to you with an issue, uh, you know, depending on the severity, you know, of bullying or whatever's happening in their peer group, try not to rush in and solve it. Try to ask questions like, you know, um, what do you think you could do better in this situation? What are you doing that's not working? Why do you think they say this about you? Why do you believe what they say? That's important because if you don't believe it, it doesn't hurt, right? And so you ask them a couple of questions rather than solving it. And when the issue resolves itself, which it normally does, and I've had this experience personally, yeah, I can see them believe, I can see the belief in themselves that actually I managed that, I dealt with that, you know, and so I'll always, so that's with Sandra, there'll always be a Sandra, I can meet Sandra again, I'll be able to deal with her again, right? So that's the first tip, don't rush in to 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 solve things for your for your children. And with an anxious child, just remember we have three responses to like a fear. One is to control, one is to avoid just watch that one as a parent, because if you let them stay home from school, if you give them a note, you're setting the you're setting a, a really difficult road for yourself. And okay. reassurance, watch overly reassuring your child. And so control will be a child who's kind of constantly trying to make sure that they they know everything. And they might even have a tick at about 10, they develop a tick. That would show you that they're struggling with control, eating, control. So there's a fear underneath that. The more you understand what that is, I think the better you're able to manage it as a parent. But there's, there's some of the big things that I would see. Mm. Don't rush to solve it. You know, don't get complicit with your child and their avoidance because that's a very difficult thing for them. They get stuck in what we'd call in psychology a positive feedback loop. The thing that they use, avoiding, is the thing that spirals their life out of control. And also, can I just say, Sheila, you know, parenting isn't a perfect pursuit. We've got to relax as parents. You're not meant to yeah. be a clinical psychologist as a parent. Good enough, you know, and being bad sometimes, that's okay too, because I think that about my own children, if I shout at them, whatever, I want them to have that experience. I want them to know I've got teeth and I want them to know I have bad days because I don't want them going out there thinking the world is Disney either and that people mm. are always happy and it's always going to be great. It's okay for them to see me, you know, not great and hungry and tired and all the rest of it because that's life and I, I can't be perfect all the time and they won't be perfect all the time and we won't be there with with them all the time. And so we're yes, trying to give yeah. them this experience to, you know, give them the right information so that they can make the right decisions when we're not around. Mm. That about the questions is brilliant. I, I, yeah. I don't know if I ask enough questions, yeah. actually. You know, it's really so important, I, yeah. Yeah, when you were saying that, I was like, I was just thinking of situations again um, where I'm going, I'm probably jumping to reassurance a lot rather yeah, than no, maybe... Yeah. opening up and, and asking the question. So thank you. You know, I, I Overly really reassuring it. can be actually mm. problematic for a child. Yeah. And I would probably be a little bit guilty of that myself. So no, we all do it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I all. always learn so much listening to you. You're Thanks, amazing. Sheila. If you found this conversation useful, I recommend you check out Richard's previous episode from last summer if you haven't heard it already. And he'll be back again soon next time with a totally different topic. You've been listening too ready to be real. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.